Today's episode of Your Stories is sponsored by Cards Against Humanity. They asked us not to read an ad, so enjoy the show! Your Stories is a wonderful opportunity to share all the highs and lows of being a nerd. You know that hobby you have that you don't talk to anyone about? It's a secret you don't like to share because it might make you feel weird. Maybe you're into something different. Uh, comic books, fantasy football, push-ups. Your Stories, to me, has been this really kind and welcoming space where people just have the guts to be really honest and they share their voices and their stories with everyone there, no questions asked. Uh, I've heard stories about all those things. Uh, maybe not not a lot of push-ups. I maybe haven't heard a lot of stories about push-ups. The Nerdalogs is group therapy meets Toastmasters. I know there's always a place where my odd thoughts and unusual habits will be welcomed and championed in a warm, supportive environment by other nerds just like me. And what's fun is you'll see people in the audience one month, and then all of a sudden they uh, go up and tell their story. So your story becomes their story, and their story is your story, and then it's our story, and then it's a podcast, so it's everybody's story, and then you've shared it, and gosh, that's great, huh? And even if you don't think you're a nerd, you probably are. It's easily the most Midwestern thing I've ever been a part of. Hey everybody, I'm Eric Garneau and this is the Nerdalogs Presents Your Stories Podcast, Best of 2017, Part 1. As you're probably aware, because I've been talking about it for weeks, uh, every December we release a couple Best of Podcast episodes to celebrate the stories and songs we've enjoyed a whole lot over the last 12 months of podcasting. Many other performers you'll hear this week and next are coming back for our final live show of the year on Sunday, December 17th on the main stage at the Beat Kitchen. Tickets for that show are available now at BeatKitchen.com, and after hearing these stories, I imagine you'll want those tickets. So let's dive right in. As always, we've got to start the episode with some music. This recording comes from our wonderful annual team-up with the Chicago Design Museum, which this year was recorded at the super posh Soho House in the West Loop. The theme of that night was Be Radical, to tie in with the Design Museum's latest exhibit, And so, Becca Brown and I performed a classic collaboration between two of the most radical artists of their day, David Bowie and Queen. Uh, Real quick, I want to say that Becca's currently in L.A. performing in the very excellent show Spamilton, and uh, so we won't be seeing her for a while. Uh, It was a real joy getting to rock with her for a couple years. Uh, She is just so talented and great, and I mean, she's in L.A. doing a show now, so that, I think, speaks to that. So thank you for everything, Becca. Here is Under Pressure. Here's another real indie hit uh, by two artists who certainly never topped the charts in their day. This is one of my favorite songs of all time. Let me know when you're ready. I'm good. You're good? All right. If you sing Ice Ice Baby, I'm going to cry. Every time Ice Ice Baby comes on the radio and I think it's this song... It solidifies why I have trust issues. Pressure pushing down on me, pushing down on you. Under pressure, it burns a building down, splits a family in two, puts people on streets. 
Scream, let me out. Pray tomorrow takes me higher. Pressure on people, people on the streets. Okay. Chipping around, kick my brains around the floor. These are the days it never rains, but it pours. People on the streets. People on the streets. It's the terror of knowing what this world is about. Watching some good friends scream, let me out. Pray tomorrow takes me higher. Pressure on people, people on the streets. Turned away from it all. Like a blind man Set out a fence But it won't work Keep coming up for love But it's so slashed and so Why? 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 Love, 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 love Insanity laughs under pressure We're cracking Can we give ourselves one more chance? Such an old-fashioned word And love dares you to care for The people on the edge of the night And love dares you to change our way Of caring about ourselves This is our last dance This is our last chance this is ourselves Under pressure Under pressure 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 Thank you. All right, time for some stories. We're starting the episode where we started the year with producer and musician Claire Friedman's final show with the group. Uh, in a packed house at the Cards Against Humanity Theater last November, a bunch of Claire's favorite storytellers, comedians, and friends took the stage to send off someone who really has been, I think, the heart of this show. Uh, from Claire's farewell, this is perennial favorite Andrew Bentley with a piece that, in light of last week's political news, uh, kind of feels terrifyingly even more relevant. Friend of the show Ben Rathert said of our teller, quote, Andrew Bentley is an American hero, and his mastery of language and humor are in full flex. I totally agree. Here's Andrew with survival tips for the new poor. Hello, I'm Andrew Bentley. Uh, now, I don't want to get too esoteric this month, uh, but some of you may be aware that there was recently an election. Uh, you may have missed it because it occurred primarily in five states uh, you would otherwise have no reason to think about. Uh, Pennsylvania, 
home of the second highest NRA membership, second signer of the Constitution, and my grandfather's second marriage to his first cousin. Uh, Florida, where the state bird is the taxidermied gator chicken grotesque discovered in a serial killer's mobile home. Wisconsin, hereafter to be known as the traitor state. North Carolina, whose two main state exports are airborne hog feces and Marine Corps rapists. And Ohio, home of the Cleveland Browns. All of these states... uh, All of these states went red on November 7th, uh, resulting in a Republican victory and perhaps... Mercifully, bringing an end at last to the Lars von Trier movie, which has been the last quarter century of Hillary Clinton's life. Uh, Unfortunately, this also resulted uh, in the election to the highest office in the country of improvisational arsonist and all-around fatuous rectum Donald Trump. Now, my, my own home state, Virginia, went blue in the election, as this is the, the third election in a row where the Commonwealth has voted uh, more in line with New England than the erstwhile Confederacy. Uh, I'm sorry to say I may now have lost my designation as a Southerner, and with it, the last vestiges of a personality. Uh, <laughs> but... In the the 12 days since the election, uh, Trump has exhibited the policies of the 1920s, the subtlety and restraint of a Captain Planet villain, and a level of interest in the actual duties of the presidency reminiscent of the time when I was nine and I guilted my nana into a two-player game of Avalon Hill's Cosmic Encounter. Between his business dealings, appointees, and general display of incompetent belligerence, uh, the only way he could throw up more red flags would be if he had personally eaten the Kremlin. (laughs) Now, all of this is background to the subject I actually mean to address, uh, the impending economic depression. Uh, All of us are likely to take a hit, and if you've recently incurred any additional financial hardships, like, say, uh, quitting your job and moving to the most expensive city in the country with your actor boyfriend, uh, it it may be pertinent uh, to learn some survival tips for crippling poverty. Um, Now, my my audience here are... My, my audience here are not the, the actual systemic poor kept in a, a state of disadvantage by the slow, grinding organs of capitalism, but rather, like me, the new poor, the soon-to-be-rife bougie poor, uh, where you still go to live theater and listen to podcasts and use plastic bags as bags and nothing else, uh, where your parents own their house and you still secretly kind of think of your poverty as fodder for a gritty-as-fuck chapter in your eventual triumphant memoirs, uh, even if that chapter is starting to get a lot, um, a, a lot longer than you, you thought it would be. Uh, maybe, there, maybe there's like a, it's a two volumes to biographies, like like Roald Dahl's, except instead of getting caned and fighting in World War II, you double major in acting and sociology and bum PBRs off your friends with business degrees. Uh, for you, from my own experience, here are, are some of the things you can expect. Firstly. If you're an introvert, good news. Uh, You don't have to see anyone anymore. Uh, Most social gatherings involve food and activities, and generally speaking, those things cost money. You now have a free excuse not to see anyone 
ever again. Uh, if people insist on inviting you places anyway, make them pay for you, or they'll never learn their lesson. Uh, if they try and trick you by planning free activities like board games or heart-to-heart -heart conversations, complain loudly about you how you had to walk there because you couldn't afford to take the bus. Uh, before you know it, you'll be free to devote your time solely to the things that matter, like replaying old computer games from your childhood, meticulously cataloging increasingly depraved pornography, and staring into the middle distance for long, silent hours while you think about every bad decision you've ever made. Uh, if you're an extrovert, you're also in luck. Uh, society finds that to be a marketable skill. Uh, there are entire fields built around being a people person, such as phone banking, drug dealing, and performing an increasingly depraved pornography for the introverts to catalog. Uh, second tip... Become one with nature. Uh, as my own standards of health, hygiene, and discourse slowly decline, I also enjoy an increasing kinship with the fauna around me. For instance, I used to kill spiders and house centipedes, which I discovered on my ceiling. Now I take a bizarre interest in their inscrutable hierarchy, picking favorites and cheering them on like my own personal reality TV show. Uh, some live on victoriously in the corners of my study, while others are ultimately bested and must leave the house, like Big Brother if the contestants ate each other, or if they found Ryan Seacrest's calcified little body curled up behind the toilet. Uh, my, my third and final tip, enjoy the show. Chances are you won't be the last to drop below the poverty line. As the tide of economic depression creeps towards high ground, much like the actual tides four years into a Trump presidency, you can lord your experience over the last in the water. Treat it like a, a cool new brunch place or bar you've discovered and, and show them how to trick the CTA sensors into giving you a free ride. Uh, when someone comes to you in tears and, and tells you they've lost everything, uh, act like you just saw, they just saw the first season of Game of Thrones and, and roll your eyes like two tumbleweeds drifting down the decrepit highways of our once proud cities. Tell them that you, you haven't seen, they haven't seen anything yet and to talk to you after they've started making toilet paper out of their old graphic design portfolio. <laughs> Make sure they feel like real ignorant assholes. <laughs> the most important thing is that they know your suffering is even realer and more important than theirs. <laughs> if you can manage that, it doesn't matter what kind of monstrous homunculi are jerking the levers of federal power like penny slots at the Bellagio. America is still great. Thank you. So last December, we celebrated five years as a podcast with a giant party at The Hideout. Uh, this next recording featuring the wonderful Mike Gifford comes from that show. Uh, we can't have a year-end show without Mike, an amazing storyteller and a great guy to boot. In nominating our talent, Jonathan Lester said that Mike's, quote, inflections and sidebars crack me up no matter what he is saying, and noted Mike's resonant perspective on young LGBT life. Unfortunately, Mike won't be able to make it to our Beat Kitchen show in a couple weeks, uh, but we'll be sure to book him again on the live show soon, so you will get your fix of Gifford. In the meantime, enjoy this story about Mike's friend Daryl. It's the five-year anniversary show of the Nerdlogs podcast, Your Stories. These folks are amazing, and I've loved working with them, and after all this time, I'm okay with Eric and Kevin's hair. I'm not thrilled with it. But I'm okay. You see, this is coming from a guy who is dressed like a gay Oompa Loompa. 
so we can all agree that podcasting is the format for us. But truly, from my heart, this anniversary reminds me that we're getting old. It's clear to you all that in dog years, I'm 221 years old. And in gay dog years, I'm dead. You see, I'm so poorly dressed, AIDS won't have me. And if you recall my recent trip to the gay sex club, you'd know I'm leaving to accept failure and my age. I moved to Andersonville, where old gays go to die. And I struck up a conversation at my neighborhood bear bar with a surgical nurse. Bear bar, where large gay men go to drink and fuck. He told me I'd be shocked by how many guys lose marble egg-shaped paperweights up their assholes. One doesn't have to be a Rubik's Cube champion to see how sticking office accessories up your own anus perhaps is an error in judgment. But different strokes for different folks. But it got me to thinking about the future. My future. And who are my heroes? And what do I wish to be and do with the rest of my life? Sidebar. I once saw a man deep throat a red dog beer bottle from the bottom way down. You see, that was the queen of the cocksuckers, the king of the homosexuals, my hero, Daryl. Daryl was my neighbor in Columbus, Ohio. You see, Daryl lived in a glorious mess of a shack surrounded by Winston Red cigarette butts, empty beer bottles, and three cats named Hime, Chuck, and Mr. Lincoln, who tried to bite off his thumb. So, but Daryl, most importantly, was good at sucking cock. One day, when walking home from the Giant Eagle, you guys know the one. Two people from my brother's church are here. You see, I was walking home from the Giant Eagle with some cereal and milk and other odds and ends, and I saw Daryl standing at a window of a house, and I yelled to Daryl, Hi, Daryl. And as he turned around, I realized that he was sucking the guy's cock in broad daylight through his window. And with a cummy smile, he said hello, turned back around and finished the job. Now that's a pro. Another afternoon, I went out for coffee, which is my want. And walking back to my house, I could see that there was a gentleman standing in Daryl's porch that I did not recognize. And I yelled to the gentleman, where's Daryl? And like a pro, he waved hello. 
Daryl was a great cocksucker. See, there were these hustlers that Daryl took back to the shed behind the shack that was his house. And in the course of coitus and fellatio, they decided to jump him, at which knocked out all of his teeth. But when he proudly showed me his dentures and how he could remove them, he goes, I'm going to be the best ever. So I was a young little fagula, and I asked Daryl, I said, Daryl, I need some help getting laid because if you're dressed like this, ugh. So, so Daryl said, okay, Mike, just sit on my porch with me and wait. What? What? Wait? So we sat and waited, and lo and behold, at about 2 in the morning, from this kind of sports bar around the corner, come two young men who yell up to us, hey, are you guys ready to party? What? It's that easy. <laughs> Daryl's like, yeah, come on up. We have lots of red dog beer and Winston cigarettes. So they come on up. Daryl took his guy to the back in the kitchen and got busy. But I was sitting next to this other gentleman talking about how I was very aware of the Watergate scandal and was drinking buddies with Watergate conspirator Jeb Magruder before that untimely motorcycle accident. God rest his soul. I failed Daryl, my hero. End of sidebar. I'm unemployed. But, you know, I'll never die alone. You see, I have the nerd logs who will always be there with a hand. A hand to pull a sad Dwight David Eisenhower paperweight out of my dried up thorny anus. I love you all. Happy five year anniversary, Nerdalogs. This show was very fortunate to be able to record a number of times in Los Angeles over the last couple of years, and boy, do we have a lot of sweet friends there. This particular piece comes from the first of two shows we did at the iconic Nerdist showroom at Meltdown Comics this year and features Katie Wadsworth, an incredibly thoughtful and talented young lady from Chicago who, in this piece, talks about her first year in Los Angeles. So I have to tell you that for quite a bit of time over the past year, I was pretty certain I'd be making the move to L.A. myself. And even though I ended up deciding against it, I think this story hits me as a very possible way my own life could have unfolded. Uh, it stayed with me since Katie told it, and I think it'll hit you too. So here is Katie Wadsworth. Hey. Um, uh, this month marks one year in L.A. for me. Um, yeah. <laughs> I haven't done anything. It's fine. Um, no, I wanted uh, I wanted to talk about my first year here because it was filled with um, some very bad luck. Um, and to understand that uh, the trajectory of my year, you have to know what happened on my sixth day in L.A. Um, just a side note, I was originally supposed to move here uh, with my girlfriend, <clears throat> and I drove across the country with half of our stuff. And um, when I got here, she said she was actually not moving at all. Um, which was fine because like we all know that like long distance relationships always work out. <laughs> um, 
so I was in a very strange city, uh, miserable and alone and unemployed, uh, now with a long-distance relationship. Um, and before I went to bed one night, I had asked the universe for a sign that I had made the right decision to move out here. Um, so the next morning, on my sixth day in Los Angeles, I woke up to the sounds of a girl screaming and crying. Um, I looked outside my bedroom window and I could see the girl who lives below me, she was on her balcony, freaking out, screaming. Um, and in a few minutes, my apartment was surrounded with police cars, ambulances, fire trucks. Um, and I opened the, the front door to my apartment and I asked my neighbor, like, what the hell happened? Um, and she told me that the girl in the apartment below me had committed suicide. And that the girl we heard screaming was her roommate who had just come home and found her. Yeah, dog, I lived it. <laughs> Uh, so my, uh, my landlord eventually told me she had done it in the bedroom directly below me. So she was 14 feet away when I fell asleep the night before. So over the next few months, I became slightly obsessed with this girl. And I found out her name and I Googled it. I found her obituary. <laughs> I saw she'd only been in L.A. for six months. Um, I'm going to call her Megan for the rest of this story. Uh, I called my mom and cried about Megan, this stranger I had never met. My Catholic mother was very insistent that I buy sage for my apartment and <laughs> just so her spirit wouldn't follow me. Um, so my January was a blur of um, crying in my car and trying to keep a long-distance relationship alive. In February, I got the flu the first week of my new job. Okay, I passed a girl in my stairwell and she was wearing all white. And when I spoke to her, she didn't speak back and I convinced myself it was Megan's ghost. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> we don't know. Uh, <laughs> um, in March, I decided I would train for a half marathon. In April, I sprained both of my feet while training for said half marathon. I couldn't walk on them for three weeks. Uh, my girlfriend visited. I sobbed the day she left and begged her not to leave me alone here. Uh, I googled Megan again and found out she was related to the snowboarder Sean White. Um, and then I thought, I bet Sean White could run 10 miles without spraining his feet. <laughs> um, in May, a dog pushed me down a flight of stairs. <laughs> in June, I joined a CrossFit gym and um, a woman who was five months pregnant beat me every day. <laughs> um... And then I thought, I bet a pregnant woman had never beat Sean White at anything. Um, I had made it six months in L.A., and I still hated it. I cried every time I saw the skyline. Megan had lived here for six months, and maybe we could have hated L.A. together. Um, in July, my girlfriend canceled on a friend's wedding we were supposed to go to. And I brought my sister instead, and I sobbed during the vows and all of the speeches, and I drank too much wine. And I spent the night at my sister's house, and in the morning, my three-year-old twin nephews jumped on my bed, and when I told them I felt like throwing up, they pretended to make gagging noises. Um, and I wondered if Megan was close with her sister. Uh, I knew she had a sister because I read her obituary. Um, did she have nieces or nephews? Did she wipe spaghetti sauce off of their faces, too? Did she have patience to cut their strawberries into fourths? 
Um, in August, I traveled eight hours for a 48-hour visit with my girlfriend with a head cold from hell and a 100-degree temperature. When I got back to L.A., she told me she wished I hadn't come at all. Um, I wondered if, because Megan died the way she did, that maybe I got some bad juju solely from proximity, and that that's why so many things felt like they were unraveling. And then I Googled how to sage my apartment and get rid of spirits. (laughs) In September, I made the same eight-hour trek to see my girlfriend. Uh, When I got back to L.A., she told me the visit was mediocre. Um... I wondered if anyone regularly told Megan she was mediocre or made her feel unlovable or boring. I also wondered if my obsession with Megan, a girl I never met or knew, was the equivalent to those weird women who fell in love with famous criminals and would try to go visit them in jail and marry them. (laughs) In October at my friend's wedding, my girlfriend caught the bouquet. A week later, we broke up. Mary Beth, you were there. Was that image as haunting for you as it is for me? I don't know. Is that... (laughs) Woo! (laughs) It's been a year, baby. Um, Okay, I met my mother and sister at an Outback Steakhouse for lunch, like one does. And when they asked me how I was doing, I started sobbing. I was trying to eat a hamburger while crying, which is very difficult to do. And all I could say was, it's been a very hard year, and I'm exhausted. In November on Thanksgiving, I cried on my parents' bed and told them I was done. I didn't think I could go on anymore. I felt unlovable and exhausted and run down. My father told me to quit being such a girl. (laughs) My mother told me I was perfect. (laughs) And that things... (laughs) She's a good one. Uh, She told me that things would get better. I would feel lighter soon. The clouds would part and other very momish things she has to say to her very sensitive youngest daughter. But she was right. In December, I noticed I didn't cry anymore when I saw the skyline. And as soon as I walked away from my relationship, I stopped feeling so lonely and sad. Um, I scrolled through a phone of people who I could call on. Los Angeles went from black and white to color. And I realized the whole year I made a little home for myself. And I watched out for dogs on stairwells. (laughs) I met someone who made me feel like I was easy to love, and I survived the first year. So for whatever reason, Megan chose to leave the earth because she felt like it was her time. And for whatever reason, I'm still here wiping spaghetti off of my nephew's faces. And I like to think that before her spirit left earth, it stopped in my room directly above hers. And a little bit of her stayed to help me out and root for me. And she sat with me while I watched really depressing documentaries. <laughs> and I tried to figure out life. And she was really proud of both of us for fighting our way through a very hard year. And I really hope she got a good laugh when that fucking dog pushed me down a flight of stairs. Thank you. Going back to Soho House for a sec, this next recording comes from podcaster Savannah Million, who shared an incredibly heartfelt piece about her mom's passing and the weeks after. Having been through similar circumstances, I found this story incredibly transportative and moving and and honest and raw and great. Uh, So did the Nerdalogs' Mary Beth Smith, who named both this and Katie's story, which you just heard, as two of her favorites of the year, calling them both, quote, blindsiders that stuck with her. So here's Savannah with reflections on awkward robots and awkward people. Hi, I'm Savannah. Um, Alex and I 
uh, Alex Cox and I have a podcast together called Roboism, and we were both supposed to be here tonight, but she had a conflict last minute, so I'm here by myself, so you're going to be really nice to me. Okay. Um, thank you. So I wrote, I wrote a little story in like the past day, um, and because Roboism is our podcast about robots, it's about robots. So um, yeah, Roboism is a podcast about uh, robots and feminism, but it's also about technology and pop culture and a lot of Elon Musk updates. Um, <laughs> and it's a lot of fun, but it's mostly about robots, so I spend time reading about robots and talking about robots and thinking about robots. And robots are really cool. Um, and they're complicated and powerful, and they've gotten really complex lately. Um, you can have conversations with them, and sometimes they can even trick you into thinking that they're human. Um, and we want them to be more like humans. Uh, we give them faces and voices and names and personalities, and we project our emotions onto them. We write stories and movies where robots are indiscernible from humans, and then we ask philosophical questions that challenge what humanity is. Um, but robots and algorithms aren't quite like humans yet. Uh, they, they, don't, they haven't quite grasped that humanness quality, and instead they just try and act like humans. And people love to point out robot shortcomings when they try and act like humans and fail, um, whether it's videos of robots playing soccer and tripping all over each other, or uh, like when you ask Alexa for the recipe for a martini and she tells you it's one part gin to six parts vermouth. Um, or a BuzzFeed article comparing Facebook's newsfeed algorithm to an awkward uncle who like knew that you liked horses when you were nine and then it's just like sending you horse stuff all the time. Um, <laughs> And we use the term robotic to mean inhuman sometimes, um, a word to describe something that goes through movements without consideration, um, follows protocol, disregards emotions, operates robotically. Um, but humans are awkward too. Um, and I know uh, Victor said that this subject was cheating, but I apologize, but um, uh, it's integral to my story, so I'm just gonna, you're just going to bear with me. But uh, my mom passed away really recently, um, and really suddenly. She was diagnosed with a really rare, aggressive form of cancer in early March, and she didn't make it to April. And since the day of that terrible diagnosis, it has become increasingly clear to me how lovely my friends are. And even my most awkward friends have said some of the kindest things to me, even when it's really hard for them and even when they didn't know what to say. But some of my friends, people who I see every day or multiple times a week, um, haven't said anything to me. And it's kind of like I'm sitting in the middle of the floor crying and I have a Roomba and it's just going around the room vacuuming like nothing is wrong. And... It's just programmed to do that. And I'm so sad, and my friends' lives continue on like Roombas, like robotically. And I notice. And I don't mean to call them out, and I would hate for anybody that I know to listen to this and think that I'm talking about them or that I'm upset with them for not saying anything to me, um, because I'm not, and I can't be, because I've also been the Roomba friend. Um, I've never gone through anything like this before, but I know people who have, and I never knew what to say to them and I felt like if I brought it up 
um, they'd be overwhelmed or they just didn't want to be reminded, and so I didn't say anything um, like I was programmed to do, right? Um, we want robots to act more like humans, but we're not always great at acting like humans ourselves. Um, we're awkward and we make mistakes and we act like robots and it's hard to step out of our routines. It's hard to process death and it's hard to talk to someone when you don't know what to say. Um, I think that we can do a better job of acting like humans. I think robots can too, but so can we. And I want to try and act like a better human by being kinder to my friends, even when it's really hard. And I think that being a good friend is pretty radical. So, thanks. Midway through the podcast year, we moved to a new venue, the very excellent and generous Beat Kitchen. Uh, this story comes from the first show we recorded there, a fundraiser for the Chicago Women's Health Center, featuring all women and non-binary individual storytellers. Performer Jen Ducharme assumed the persona of a radical feminist lecturer in this take on women who run with the wolves, prompting one listener to write in that she gets all her life advice from Jen, appropriate since Jen also hosts an advice podcast. Here is Jen Ducharme with the truth about modern female sensuality. Yes, I am Jen Ducharme. <laughs> Guest lecturer from Sarah Lawrence College. <laughs> I'm here to tell you about women. <laughs> and the truth about women. <laughs> Sensual woman. Why does this have to be a phrase? Can't we just say women? <laughs> and we know we women must, are, and be sensual? <laughs> For centuries, women have been subjected to male-oriented, phallic-centric, systems of mores, trivializing women's emotions, experiences, and simple pleasures. For instance, drinking a melted Activia yogurt, <laughs> washing with Dove bath products, eating Dove chocolate bars, washing with Dove chocolate bars and eating Dove bath products, <laughs> douching with Summer's Valley, an off-brand cleanser, that is just as effective. <laughs> or reading the latest feminist theory by yours truly. Uh, there are a few copies in the, my merchandise table there, right there in the back. <laughs> just in case you want to check it out. <laughs> my most recent book, as we all know we're here to talk about today. <laughs> it is based on the beloved feminist theoretic novel, Women who run with the wolves. <laughs> if you are not aware of this immaculate text, it is a compilation of indigenous cultures for folklore about uh, the wild woman. And what is the wild woman? It is an eight wise being that exists deep underneath our vocal fry. <laughs> Question since I first read a draft back in 1991 before it was published. How does the wild woman manifest in today's modern society? So I took it upon myself to try and acquire the rights of women who run with the wolves 
And when that failed, I was inspired to write an unauthorized sequel to <laughs> Women Who Run With the Wolves. And it's called Women Who Run With the Wolves 2. <laughs> Running with the squad. <laughs> what is the wild woman today? The wild woman today responds to the call of nature by hiking up her skirt, pushing back her oppressive underwear, and relieving herself on a city sidewalk while holding on to construction scaffolding, yelling at all the cars and pedestrians walking by, I'm not afraid! I am a wild woman! The wild woman represses her regrets and desires so strongly that the only enjoyment she receives out of life is berating service industry professionals. <laughs> she doesn't care who's behind her. She will have them all wait in line. <laughs> the wild woman of today has been featured on every episode of Snapped. <laughs> the wild woman today responds to a male co-worker's tantrum by throwing a stapler at his balls. <laughs> the wild woman today attends Big Frida concerts twerking on unwilling participants while maintaining very uncomfortable eye contact. <laughs> These are tales of modern female sensuality. <laughs> Women today are just pressurized valves bursting out of the confines of their tightly restrained lives. Women losing their shit is modern sensuality. <laughs> and yes, that is an academic term. Thank you so much. So, uh, just to go into detail of all the merchandise I have at my table, I just have a few of my published items, uh, such as Tupperware Prison, Broom Closet, My Mother's Happy Place. All dogs are boys and all cats are girls. And then the one that I am, uh, this is very vulnerable of me to say, but uh, my memoir is also in the back, titled, uh, My Parents Are Dying. Yay! <laughs> so please pick it up. Thank you so much. Closing out this episode, Stories, is a haunting piece about relationships that, appropriately, comes from this year's Halloween episode. In Leah Marshall's first appearance on Your Stories, she hit a home run with a story about her last relationship. Fellow speaker from the night Juan Kim had this to say about Leia. Very well executed, poignant, and overall heartfelt. It kind of hit all the right emotions and was relatable because it seemed to have happened to everyone in the room. Or maybe just me. Uh, I feel you, Juan. I definitely feel you. I feel Leia. Get ready to feel Leia with Ghosted. So this is a story about Ben. Ben was one of the best conversationalists I'd ever met. And he could make me laugh like no one else, the sexiest quality of all. We actually met at a grocery store. Well, technically, we connected on a dating app. But hours before our initial date, Ben and I literally almost bumped into each other at the Whole Foods in our neighborhood. He was there buying deodorant for our date. <laughs> I had just finished dance class and was running in for a drink. He spotted me, recognizing me from my photos, which was, frankly, a miracle 
because Saturday mornings I do three hours of dance classes, and usually just getting to the studio for the 10 a.m. class is a win. I rarely make time for niceties like hair brushing, putting on underwear, definitely no makeup, and so I was surprised and flattered. We started chatting briefly and then parted ways to get ready for the evening. And shortly after I left, I got a text from him. You're just as beautiful as your photos. So we ended up dating for two months and had the most fun together. From us going to the driving range and taking bets on who'd hit the caddy cart first, <laughs> to a day trip to the Indiana Dunes, a salmon cook-off, his smoked salmon versus my world-famous raspberry chipotle roasted salmon, badminton on the beach we weirdly both played in high school, leisurely bike rides, romantic boat rides, lazy brunches, strolls through Chicago neighborhoods, homemade tortilla and ceviche making, hashtag seduction, <laughs> movies in the park, ping pong, and parties with friends. There was also incredible romance, affection, and chemistry. I was at an event last month where one of the speakers, an incredible poet named Najwa Zebian, said, when you feel truly seen by someone, you let your guard down and you're vulnerable. And we get attached to that feeling of authenticity, sometimes even more for our feelings for the person themselves. And I think that's what happened with Ben. I shared parts of myself with him that I hadn't with anyone else before. I remember one of the times that we cooked dinner together. We're at his dining room table and I love to be rubbed. And so he was massaging my legs and there I was with this incredible guy and he just cooked me dinner and he was rubbing me and I was gazing into his gorgeous blue eyes. And I look at him and I say, Ben, I need to tell you something. And he's like, what? Oh my God, I hope this isn't being syndicated on Nickelodeon. <laughs> I look at him and I say, all I want is for you to eat that corn salad off my body right now. <laughs> and matter-of-factly, without skipping a beat, true Ben style, he replied, oh, you're into splashing. Does anyone know? Maybe you two know. Does anyone know what sloshing is? No. Okay, a couple of people. What do you know about it? Uh, this is going to be Nickelodeon, right? No, no Nickelodeon. I've been told. Well, it's like food porn, except... It's like a food fetish. Okay, so I didn't know what sloshing was until he said it. I just thought I really enjoyed treating my body like a platter and getting food off, eaten off of me. And I say this jokingly, but the truth is, I was totally myself with Ben. And I didn't realize until Najwa spoke those words that most of us go through life hiding aspects of ourselves a lot of the time. And Ben was no exception. About a month into our dating, I learned, while in a very compromising position, that Ben had just ended a two-year relationship weeks before we started dating and wasn't looking for anything serious. There's a woman named Esther Perel. Some of you might be familiar with her. She gave a viral TED Talk on desire. I got to see Esther speak recently at an event 
And she said something so profound. She said, often in dating, you're picked for a role that you didn't audition for. And this was definitely the case for both Ben and me. On our first date, Ben told me, you're so different than I thought you'd be, than your photos make you seem. At the time, I took it as a total compliment because my photos are saucy. And I thought Ben was saying that he loved how smart and substantive I am in addition to being hot. Nope. He was just communicating that he was looking for a fling and thought that I was too. And to be fair, I saw his profile and assumed he was a nice Jewish boy looking for something meaningful because that's what I was looking for. After Ben told me he wasn't looking for anything serious, my ego was a little bruised, but I figured I'd continue to date other guys and just move him down a peg on my priority list. The truth was, though, none of the guys I was dating made me feel what I felt with Ben. For me, one of the ultimate aphrodisiacs is incredible conversation, and it came effortlessly with Ben. He was always telling me something fascinating he had just read or would respond to a question in a way that completely pushed my thinking. One evening after we'd spent the day together on a boat, I asked him what he loved so much about being on the water. He told me about how in Catch-22, one of the main characters does things that are boring as a way to prolong life by seemingly slowing time. There's a luxurious feeling to spending a day on a boat with nothing to do, Ben replied. I loved his thoughtful explanations and his unexpected answers and the creative, quirky way that he viewed the world. Towards the end of our dating, the text came a little less frequently and usually would start with a sorry for the late reply. One of my responses was, all good. Some guys just have a longer refractory period. <laughs> <laughs> ben knew exactly what I meant, and without missing a beat, he replied, but when I finally do respond to a text, I'm incredibly passionate about it. Our last date together started with a walk, hand in hand, then cocktails and delicious conversation overlooking the city at Hotel Roby and finally sparks in the bedroom and in the kitchen. Nothing unusual or out of the ordinary happened that night, but I never did hear from Ben again. I had forgotten how much it hurt, missing his touch, the way his text put the biggest smile on my face, the tantalizing anticipation of our time together, knowing how much I turned him on, and the intoxicating feeling of being turned on as well. In that moment, and in the days that followed, I felt this horrible mix of embarrassment, sadness, and loss. We all have different ways of coping with our dating horror stories. On good days, for me, it's binge listening to Beyonce. <laughs> so empowering. In my less proud moments, it's definitely cookie dough ice cream and cheesy Hallmark movies. Slightly less empowering. I think it's easy to blame yourself and beat yourself up when someone you're dating rejects you, especially when it happens without a conversation or closure. But the real horror story, and I believe this so wholeheartedly, is when we let these experiences define us, make us question that we'll ever find connection or chemistry again, make us doubt our value or that there are incredible people out there for us right now. And this doesn't just apply to dating, it's everything. 
It's a risk that we take at work that gets shot down. It's a leap that we take as an entrepreneur or an aspiring screenwriter <laughs> that fails. The true horror story is never what happens to us. It's the meaning we give it and whether we use it as an excuse to hold us back from putting ourselves out there again or as a catalyst to reflect, learn, and become a stronger version of ourselves. When Ben disappeared, I got my hands on as many relationship, dating, and attraction materials that I could. The work I invested will make me a better partner in my next relationship. And the truth is, Ben's actions inspired me to become a stronger version of myself and elevate my standards for the men that I date. And I can't think of a greater gift that you can give someone than the inspiration to evolve. Sometimes I think it takes a heartache to realize you're worth more than you were settling for. And when you know how much you're worth, you stop giving people and ghosts discounts. Thank you. And that brings us to the end of this half of the best ofs. Remember, all these storytellers you just heard, except Mike Gifford and Katie Wadsworth, will be taking part in our year-end bash at the Beat Kitchen on December 17th. You can get tickets for the event now at BeatKitchen.com, and they'll also be available at the door. Before we go, though, we've got to close with one more song. Uh, this one is also from Claire's For A While episode, and man, it is super emotional. It's the song Claire left us all with, appropriately named Chicago. Apparently, Claire had been suggesting that we perform this song for years, and I always shot her down. I honestly don't even remember that, but it makes sense because I really didn't like Sufjan Stevens, who is the artist behind this song. Uh, but for her last show, Claire had free reign, no vetoes on the songs we did. And so we finally did it. And now this song is burned into my head as a favorite. That's the power of friendship, I guess. Thanks, Claire. We miss you. Also, it's worth stating, only Matt Young has made me cry at your stories before tonight, so fuck you forever. <gasps> <laughs> Why did you Bef cry at? Oh, his dog story. No. Why did you cry tonight? <laughs> you! Really? Yeah! <laughs> what did you think we were crying? Yeah! Oh, jeez, I don't know, Claire. You can't yeah. <laughs> This is the tenor I want from this event. <laughs> fuck you, Claire, you dummy. I love you. You're leaving. Get out. That's what I want. All right, we should probably do this song. So I guess can go so home. people can go home and sleep. That we makes love sense. you. Thank you for being we love here. You. One, two, three, four. All things go, all things go, drove to Chicago. All things know, all things know, we sold our clothes to the state. I don't mind, I don't mind, I made a lot of mistakes in my mind, in my mind. You came to take us. All things go, all things go, to recreate us. 
truck with everything I owned. We slept in parking lots. I don't mind. I don't mind. I was in love with the place. In my mind. In my mind. I made a lot of mistakes. In my mind. In my mind. You came to If you'd like to help make more things like this, please visit patreon.com slash nerdalogs to donate today. And go to www.nerdalogs.com for more cool stuff. Thanks for being awesome. Thank you all. Thank you all. I am Grabbot23548X.